Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Let's get into this. Let's try to get through as much of this material as we can. There's a lot to look at. Um, again, some of this is going to be repetitive, which is good for you because you get to hear, you're, you're hearing the same words used multiple times, sometimes the same concepts used multiple times, and then sometimes they're used, you know, we've kind of built a foundation and then they're going to be used in different ways. So it helps to kind of broaden what you already know about certain ideas. So that's Kind of why, you know, we're bouncing around a little bit, but I'm introducing you to a lot of ideas and a lot of people and a lot of concepts and manuscripts and all sorts of different, all sorts of different things. And then it'll all start to kind of tie together and build a good foundation as we, as we move forward. So at least that's the goal. Hopefully it works out that way. Since, so we're going to look at the idea of inspiration versus preservation. This is the battle over whether we have the, the Word of God or not. I mean, it, it's in, in its most simplistic form, this is the problem. God said He would inspire His Word, and God said He would preserve His Word, but the argument ensues because people, people mix the two up. There's a big difference between inspiration and preservation. And, and we're going to get to that. I'm, I'm, I've already in many classes gotten ahead of myself, and you're going to hear me say things. You'll be like, oh, I thought you already taught us that. Well, it wasn't in my previous notes. It just came to my mind, and I said it, and now it's in these notes, so I'm going to say it again. And you're going to be like, what? <laughs> Sounds like he's just saying the same thing over and over. I'm not supposed to be. I just, if I would stick to my notes, I wouldn't, but uh, that's just how it goes. So since the 1800s, okay, when we talk about Virgin, and who is he? Very good. <clears throat> Dean, Dean John Burgeon. <laughs> hey Amen. This is going well. <laughs> yes. He was the one who was. Yeah, so you're. you're yeah, he was, he was kind of against Westcott and Hort. Now, we've gone over, we did a kind of a profile of Westcott and Hort. We're going to do the same thing of John Burgeon. So that's kind of, I've, I've mentioned him in several places, but we really haven't gone over him in detail. That's, 
That's probably why you're, you're all struggling. It's like, I know the name. I, you've told us about him, but who is he? We're, we're going to go over his, his information in, like, in a similar way that we did to Westcott and Hort. Not quite as in-depth uh, because he believes what we believe, basically. So there's not a whole lot to, <laughs> to really uh, go over. I, I want you to know more about who he is and what he did and less about his doctrinal errors. Now, he was, I believe he was, an, he was an old, a very old-school Anglican so I'm sure we, if we sat down, we could find problems with his doctrine. But ultimately, this man believed the word of God, and he, did, he spent his life's work doing everything that he could defending the word of God. We're talking 30 to 50 years worth of dedicated, in-depth, scholarly, high-level proof and work for, for the preservation of the word of God through the King James Bible. So you have him, and then you have who were against him, Westcott and Hort. All right, so the, these two, what's important here, in the 1800s, the late 1800s, um, what happened is two ideological views regarding the Word of God came to the surface. You had Westcott and Hort who said, the King James Bible is not the Word of God, or at least it has problems, and we're going to fix it. But, by the way, we're also a bunch of devils who hate the Word of God, so when we fix it, we're going to destroy it. And then on the other side of that idea, you had Dean John Burgeon, and he was an actual dean. That's why, that's why they call him Dean. It's confusing because he's got like, you'll see his name is Dean John W. I think W.H. Burgeon. So he's got like four or five names. <laughs> but but uh, if you remember Dean Burgeon or John Burgeon, that's him. And he, he contended that the King James Bible is the Word of God and that it does come from reliable manuscripts. And then he spent his life's work putting together that information and proving it. And so now you have all his books, I mean volumes of books that this man put together Proving the King James Bible is the Word of God, proving its lineage, proving it came from, from uh, people that can be trusted, like Erasmus and, and William Tyndale and, and so on and so forth. And so he went through all of that. And so, so the Christian world is now splitting at this point. And you've got to make a choice. You're either going to jump on this bandwagon that says we need to change the King James Bible that has already dominated for 200 plus years at this point. We're talking like 250, 260 years. The King James Bible has been the, the king. <laughs> like it's, it is the word of God for the English speaking people. And now all of a sudden, two devils come along and convince the world, now nah, we need to change that. And they do. And it had a massive impact. Um, some of you are helping us uh, teach through the Bible on Uganda Baptist Radio. Uh, we put together this program where several men in the church are, are teaching uh, um, a man named A.P. Gibbs, who's a, a great preacher. He was uh, down in South Africa, uh, and, and, uh, and he made this book. He put this book together, and it's a series of outlines that if you preach one of those outlines every single week, every five years, you'll preach through the entire Bible. So we're doing that on the radio, and, and we're having you know, several men from the church who, are, who Pastor Paul wants to help give time preaching and studying and, and putting together sermons. They're helping to preach through that. And this program is also what our home church uses. So any of the men in our home church who teach Sunday school, we go through this exact same program. Well, A.P. Gibbs wrote several great books. 
in which he tells you the, K, the KJV is okay, but you need the RSV. He existed right in the, from the early 1900s to about the 1950s, 1960s, around that time frame. So it's just as we're exiting, this is around the 1870s um, to be a little closer to the exact time. So we're not, by the time A.P. Gibbs comes on the scene, we're not far removed from this battle that took place. And it didn't take long, and the King James Bible is being set aside by Christians all over the world. Uh, a man I love to listen to is um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an unbelievably brilliant man, great Bible teacher. He was an atheistic doctor who got saved and then ended up being the pastor of, of Westminster, which is a, is a huge deal in, in, in England. Well, you can't listen to his preaching without hearing him say the King James translators messed this up. And, you know, that the, R, the RSV has a better translation. Well, according to what? Based on what? It, the, the entire statement, if you listen to every time he says it, he doesn't take you back and, back and say the reason that the King James translators messed this up is because of this and this and this in the Greek. So it's not like he could go back and say, if we, if we study the Greek manuscript and then we come back to what was said in the RSV versus the KJV, then we can see that there's an objective problem with what the King James translators produced. No, he, he reads the two and he feels like one is better than the other. He's not going back and comparing translation work. He just thinks that, well, this wording kind of fits better what I think should be here. So I think the RSV is better here. And then sometimes he says, well, the RSV messed this up. I think the KJV is better here. Now, he, an unbelievably, a brilliant man, great Bible teacher. I mean, just hours and hours. His work through the book of Romans is excellent. It will, he, will, he will make you question some things you think you believe. I mean, really makes you think in depth about what he's teaching. It, 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 there's nothing shallow about what he's teaching. But he was deceived about the word of God. He was taught improperly. He bought the teaching. And so now he, he, he's a double-minded man trying to teach you the word of God. I'm just going to pick which one I think is better here and there. So he, he's around the set. So you have A.P. Gibbs, who's just, just an example. You don't need to write his name down. I'm just, uh, and then Martin Lloyd-Jones. These men are very close to this time period right here. The 1870s, when all this, this, when this battle took place. So 1881, you had the, the, the New Testament of the RSV. And by 1892, like, I think it was, you had the Old and the New Testament of the RV. It's the RV, not the RSV. It's, the RSV came later because the RV wasn't good enough. So now you've got to have the revised standard version. So for, first you had the King James version. Then you had to have the revised version of the King James version. Then you had to have the revised standard version of the King James version. And that wasn't good enough. So now you need the American standard version and the English standard version and the new international version. And it just goes on endlessly and endlessly and endlessly until the devil sits back and laughs at a bunch of Christians staring at a, at a bookshelf in a store trying to pick a Bible. It'll boggle your mind. You're standing there like, I just wanted a Bible. What is all this? <laughs> well, we have one in English. It's the King James Version. But people can't, because of this battle that took place, and because fundamental Bible-believing Christians, not Baptists, 
Don't limit your scope to Baptists. If you limit yourself to Baptists, you really limit your world and your ability to learn the Bible. Because great men outside of Baptist churches taught the Bible. All right? Now, we're Baptists. I'm a a Baptist missionary. I believe today, if you're going to hear the truth, it's going to be in a Baptist church. I couldn't tell you a, a, a single other denomination where you would hear truth if you went into that church today. Okay? That wasn't true in this time. We could go to an Episcopalian church and, and you'd hear the word of God preached. All right? Now, there would be doctrinal issues and doctrinal differences and all of that. That's, that's fine. But don't be so shallow that you think, I mean, the world came to be saved when God made the Baptist. Because <laughs> that's not true. In fact, Baptist churches today are going the same way that every other denomination goes. Right down the drain. Try to, try to just find a Baptist church just in Uganda, much less in America. Okay, now, and, and so that, none of that is the point. The point is fundamental Bible-believing churches should have, in this battle, followed Dean John Burgeon, and they did not. Now, a small scale did. A small remnant did. And, and that's the case even today. The number of people who will tell you I believe this is the perfect word of God amongst fundamental Bible-believing churches. That number is real small. In fact, most of the Baptist churches look at us like we're crazy because we believe the King James Bible is the perfect word of God. I say, you believe that? And I say, you don't believe that? (laughs) Then you're telling me you don't have the word of God. I do. You don't. You're in trouble because you you said in your doctrinal statement, I read it, it said, you know, the Bible is our final authority. What Bible? You don't have one. You have no access to God's word. What are you going to do? You're lost in a a world that hates God, that hates the word of God, in a world that believes a man can just show up and say, I'm a woman. And everybody's supposed to believe that. And, you, and, and you're actively telling people, I don't know where God's word is. It's in the originals. <laughs> okay, well, bring me one. Well, I don't have one. You don't know where it is. Okay, now, I, I don't believe the King James Bible is the perfect word of God because it's, it's the only option. I believe it can be objectively demonstrated this is the word of God. It comes from the Word of God. It was carefully translated into English. And at that point became the Word of God in English without error, without problems. We have it. It's right here. All right? They they didn't follow this man who would have proved that to them. Instead, they followed these men. And a Baptist preacher today will tell you, you can't be involved in ministry because your hair is not cut properly. But in the Bible, in the Greek, <laughs> it's like you, you, you want me to have a haircut, but you don't have God's word. I think we have bigger problems if you don't know where the word of God is. You can't have a church. You can't operate the church. You can't run the church. You can't teach people anything that God says because you don't have what God says. You should be in crisis mode right now. You believe your entire eternity. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, you don't have it. 
You don't know where it is. You think it's in some original document that doesn't exist anymore. You don't have a clue what God said. You're in serious trouble. But I'm the crazy one. You're going around telling people that this is your authority, but you, then you, in the next statement you say that your authority is full of problems, and so you've got to go back to the originals which don't exist, and you've created this entire loop that makes no sense. You're completely incoherent and confused. But if you say in the Greek, you sound intellectual, you sound intelligent and smart. To me, you sound stupid, <laughs> but... People don't tend to ask me those questions. So you have this split in the 1800s. Christian circles, um, they, they should have followed Burgeon and, and believed that the word of God was inspired. And, and not just because Burgeon told them that. Burgeon provided numerous proof. I mean, we're talking, and I have his books. If anybody's interested in seeing them, you're welcome to, to, to do so. In fact, when this class is finished, I'm going to teach through, I'm going to continue the recordings and teach through some of his books because they're unbelievably important. And, and this idea needs to be confronted and there needs to be material available to confront it. And that's the man, that, this was the battle that took place. He's the man that, that provided ample proof that the King James Bible is the word of God. And many of our brethren said, we're going to throw him to the side, and in all our seminaries, and all our Bible colleges, we're going to teach what Westcott and Hort said. We're not going to teach what, what, John, what Dean John Burgeon taught. And that was a major, major mistake. So then you get to these men in the 1900s, the 1950s, the 1960s, 1980s, and it just expanded from there until you have so many English versions, it would make your head spin if you looked at them all. None of them say the same thing. They all say something different. We talked about those, the, the Alexandrian manuscripts that Westcott and Hort said. They don't even agree with each other. <laughs> well, it's still true today of every Bible that came from an Alexandrian manuscript. They don't agree with each other. They all say something completely different. You get an NIV from the 1960s and an NIV from the 1990s, they say something different. Why would you have that? How is that scholarship? That is the expansion of confusion. <laughs> and everybody follows after it as though it were royalty. Now, these men believe the originals are the perfectly inspired word of God. And any translation, including the King James Bible, is nothing more than sinful man's best attempt to produce a Bible in another language. All right? So they, this is where they get confused. Inspiration versus preservation, and they don't believe it's possible for the inspired Word of God or the preserved Word of God to be translated. As soon as you mention it was translated, oh, it's translated? No, I mean, that's, there's no way you can do that. Well, no, there's no way you can do that. God can do it with no trouble at all. I understand that you can't do that. I can't do that. But God has no problem doing that. <laughs> that's, that's not an issue for God. And if it's an issue for your God, you should dump that God and come to the God of the Bible because he has no, he has no trouble there. Um, in their view, the originals are the inspired, but translations are erroneous automatically. Now, that again, does everybody know the difference between objective and subjective? 
These are important philosophical terms that everyone should understand. What does it mean if you, if you make an objective statement? Somebody just take a guess. It's okay if you don't know. just want you to think. No, well, it's, so you're, you're making a statement, and it's, a, it's an objective statement. It means that you have factual proof or data to back up what you're saying. It's, if I make an objective statement, I can show it to you. I can take you somewhere, and I can prove to you what came out of my mouth has evidence for it, Right? Subjective is completely feelings-based. Well, I feel like this is right. I don't care how you feel. If you can't demonstrate to me that it's right, then it's just your feelings. And your feeling, you might feel like Matoke and end up getting posho. Nobody cares about your feelings. Your feelings change rapidly. Your feelings are the most shallow part of you and cannot be trusted. What does the Bible say about a man's heart? It's deceitfully wicked. And you're going to trust your feelings? No, I don't think so. So in life, you have, this is the way I break down layers of information available to you in life. First, you have absolute truth. Only found in the word of God. You could argue to some extent that mathematics is, an, is a form of absolute truth. As math, in many cases, it is what it is. There's, there's, there's no toying with it. Two plus two equals four. Now, if you say it equals something other than four, you got a problem. Because mathematically, you cannot change that. The reason this building is standing is because mathematically, what, what was necessary to make it work, it's, it's there. Right? So it's, it's standing. And it's not collapsing on us. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Omonin. <laughs> um, so this is the first layer that's available to you in terms of truth. And it's in the Word of God, possibly in certain forms of mathematics. Not all of them. Some, some forms of mathematics are theoretical and, and scientific. And so you have to prove what you're what you're trying to say, but major aspects of mathematics you can't play with. That's why, that's why Darwinian evolutionists hate math, <laughs> because the math doesn't add up when it comes to their theory. It, it destroys the theory of evolution. It's, it's completely disruptive. The second level is objective truth. All right, this means data exists. This means there's information you can look to that, that people have produced that will allow you to make a reasonable and good decision based on the data that exists. Masking does absolutely nothing for the coronavirus. There is plenty of objective data, scientific data that will prove that to you, but nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody paid attention. So you see people walking around outside by themselves with a mask on. That person's brain is broken. All this, all this coronavirus stuff and politics using it the way it did, they broke people. Because they based everything on their subjective feelings. They didn't go look at any objective data. So when someone comes to you and says, 
somebody died in, in, in Uganda. The government did it. Okay, what are you going to present me to prove to me that the government killed someone in Uganda? Nothing. So your feelings that make you think the government killed someone in Uganda need to be set aside until you can find some, some objective information that will prove to you that the government killed someone in Uganda. Otherwise, you're just making things up and you're adding to the confusion. You want to base your life on absolute truth, first of all, the word of God. Secondly, you want to make sure the next layer down is objective truth. The third layer is relative truth. And it's all subjective. So relative truth means it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And you don't want to live according to this level of, of truth. In some cases, something might be not, not true for you and not true for me, because if it's truth, it's going to be true, period. There, there, is, no, there is no ranking the truth. There is no, there is no saying it, what's well, true for him, but it's not true for me. That makes no sense. Now, it might be more relevant to him, and less relevant to me, but if it's true, it is true. Period. Truth cannot not be true. Does that make sense? So you can't say it's true for him, but not true for me. If that's the case, it's not true. <laughs> it's not truth. You're, you're saying that it's faulty. It's got problems, so it can't be. It can't be declared to be true. All right. So it's either relevant to you or not relevant to you, but it's true or not true. And so you don't want to live. In, in, in the subjective world where your feelings are leading you around and, and telling you what to do and making your decisions. If you've got to make a financial decision, you've got to make a marriage decision, you've got to make a decision with your children, take a step back and look at the facts that exist and then make a proper decision. First of all, does the Word of God address it directly? If it does, then you don't need to go here. I don't care what the objective data says. God said, do it this way, not that way. So I'm going to do what God said, period. Okay. Now, if God didn't deal with it directly in his word specifically, then I'm going to go look for some objective, clear data that will help me make a proper decision based on factual information. So many problems in your life could be cleared. You would just slow down and look at what facts are available to help you make decisions. It, I'm telling you, it will alter your life. <laughs> so here we have this problem. Inspiration, preservation, translation. Well, I don't feel that a translation could be the word of God. I don't care about your feelings. I, I mean that. <laughs> I really don't care about your feelings. And this is a problem I have in life. <laughs> I have to try and be nice to people in, in certain situations, because people are so wrapped up in their feelings, they get offended and they get upset and they get mad. When you came to me and made a stupid statement that you didn't think about and you didn't, you didn't do any research on, and then when I correct you with truth, you get mad at me and, and, and leave. And so my wife has to teach me how to try to be, you know, how, how to say things <laughs> in a nicer way. And, and, and I get that. Just some people shouldn't be allowed to talk. They should just shut up and be quiet and, and not speak. Because 
You say things that have no grounding in reality, that have no grounding in truth, that have no facts to back them up, that have no grounding in the word of God. And when you do that, you add to the confusion. So when some fool stands in a pulpit and says, well, you know, God shouldn't, I mean, the King James translators, this is the wrong word. In the Greek, what this word actually is, is that what you just did was confuse everyone listening to you into thinking that this book, the Word of God, has a mistake in it, but you're there to fix the mistake. There's no objective data for that. There's no, there's no biblical data for that. So I'm going to call you a liar, and I'm not going to listen. In fact, I can't even hear anything else that people say after they do that, because in my head, I'm like, I can't believe that... Why am I here? My, my wife's listening to this. Now i got to go back later and, and show her the stupidity in what this guy said. We came here to hear the word of God, and instead he's correcting the word of God. And, and we came here to hear somebody preach the word of God, and they're preaching through a translator. And he just turned to a translator and told him a Greek word and wants him to translate that into Luganda. It makes no sense. It helps nobody, and it confuses everybody And it's completely, completely subjective. There's nothing factual about it. And so it needs to be dealt with. This idea is taught with great zeal in seminaries and Bible colleges. The idea of the idea that God cannot translate his word. The idea that it's only true in the originals. They they love this idea. I, I sat at a table one time and I listened to uh, faithful men who served, one, one of the men at the table had served God for 65 years. Okay? So, and this is why you have to be careful. Because God used that man for 65 years. So, I'm not going to harm him or his ministry, though if he engages me in a conversation about the Word of God in Greek, he is going to find out what I believe. Okay? And they're sitting at this table and they're, and they're, They're boasting about their knowledge of Greek words. Men who had served God for 65 years. And they're talking about how people didn't want to come to their Sunday school class. It was an an elite Sunday school class because we knew the Greek. Did you not just catch what you just said? Nobody wanted to come to your Sunday school class and learn the word of God because you're speaking in a language that you don't know and they don't know and you're helping nobody. How do you not see the problem with that? What is wrong with you that you're you're so wrapped up in yourself and your ability to memorize a Greek word? Because you don't speak Greek. There's a difference. I know some Luganda words. How many of you would say that I speak Luganda? Nobody? Thanks for the vote of confidence. But you understand the point. I, I know some phrases. I know some words. I can have a very, very short conversation with you. (laughs) Which means I don't speak Luganda. Not yet. Lord willing, I will. So a man comes up and he says, I I memorized a Greek word. And? There's a brother at our church back home. He speaks Greek. And so people come and they say, well, this word in the Greek, he'll start talking to them in Greek. And they're like, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. I know you don't. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. So you should stop pretending like you do. 
before somebody makes a fool out of you in front of everybody. Now, if you speak English, raise your hand if you speak English. Okay, how'd you feel if I came here and began teaching you Greek words so that you can know what God said in your English Bible? It irks me, in case you can't tell. It frustrates me that men who are supposed to stand in pulpits and encourage people to fall in love with the Word of God end up discouraging them and teaching them that they don't have a Bible they can trust and that they need me. Because I have a Greek concordance. <laughs> what would you do without me and my Greek concordance? You'd be lost. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't know what God said. No, I don't need you. I don't need your religious bondage, and I don't need your confusion. I have a Bible that, in which God said, Jesus Christ said, it's full of truth, and that that truth would set me free. So I'm sorry, I don't need you. And we're not making it very far. All right, so, so this fight over the method of preservation is a battle of human logic. That's all it is. Nobody's taking an objective look at what God said. They're trying to come up with logical and theological theories about what they think God did. I don't know. How about open your Bible and find out what God said? So when God said, I'm going to preserve my word, and then you have it in front of you, you're calling God a liar when you then come and say, well, God made a mistake here. He said he would preserve his word. So do I trust you or do I trust what God said? I'm going to trust what God said. He seems rather dependable. You don't. So the Lord promised he would preserve his word, uh, but he did not tell us how he would do that. And there's the problem. So how do we know this English Bible is the word of God? Well, I can show you plenty of objective truth that would demonstrate to you this Bible comes from a long line of the Word of God. And then its translation from that long line into English was done in such an incredible manner, you would have to admit that God played a role in it. And so we have today the Word of God in English. Now, it's going to require some measure of faith for you to believe that. Not totally. It's not blind faith. There's plenty of objective historical fact that will demonstrate to you where this book came from and how it was translated. It's, it's available for anybody who wants to have it. Or you can just go on your feeling. I just don't see how a translation could be. I know you don't see it. We're, nobody's asking you about what you see or how you feel. Do you have something to back that up? Because... Lots of books exist all across the world that have been translated in different languages, and nobody has a problem with that. No, nobody. So I told you about Alexander Solzhenitsyn a couple weeks ago. His book, The Gulag Archipelago, was translated into like 80 different languages. And nobody picks up The Gulag Archipelago in another language and says, you know, you can't translate this into another language. It's probably full of errors and problems, probably not worth reading. Nobody does that. Only with the Word of God do they do that. And men who are supposed to be preachers are the ones leading the way. I encourage them to go get a real job and to be honest and stop being liars in a pulpit 
misleading people. It's a subtle trick of the devil. You got good, godly men teaching people that they can't trust God's word. How does that happen? How does that exist? It's insane. All right, so therefore, this fight over the method of preservation is a battle of human logic. A simplistic view of the logic is this. The seminary graduates believe it is impossible for God to use sinful men to translate his word from one language into another. And that's the problem. They'll tell you that sinful men recorded the originals, and that's okay. But God couldn't use sinful men to get it from the Greek language or the Hebrew language into English. That's not okay. And that's their beef. That's their problem. The men were sinful, and it's a translation. Surely God didn't translate his word, and you think it's accurate? Yeah, I do. And if you don't, you don't have God's word. You're lost. You don't know what God said. But the logic fails. God used sinful men to write his word in the so-called originals. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. We've read it before, but we'll read it again. Good, good for everybody to memorize, if you haven't already. 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll read verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy came not in old time by the will of who man so where did prophecy not come from it did not come from man right okay so if the problem is sinful man problem solved it didn't come by the will of man this is why it's so important if you're going to espouse an idea, you need to make sure that it's congruent with the Word of God, that it is correct. Okay? God said, prophecy, scripture, the Word of God, it didn't come by men. Okay? So it didn't come by the will of men. Because people are going to come up to you and they're going to say, you know, man wrote that. No, duh. Like, what did you think God was going to do? Send an angel down with a desk and, and, and start writing? <laughs> and that's supposed to shake my faith in the Word of God? That you just found out it was written by men? But it wasn't written by the will of men. Look at the rest of the verse. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, so another question. God says the men were moved. Does that mean they were inspired? No. They were moved. If they were inspired, guess what the Bible would have said? That the men were inspired. The men were moved to record God's inspired words. Okay, now if God moved men to record his word, could he not move men to translate? Why is that so, why is that so unbelievable? 
that they translated God's word from one language to another language and that God might have played a role in, in moving men to accomplish that. Why is that so, so, like apparently God can create heaven and earth and hold the waters of the earth in his hands, but he can't translate a language. Do you not see the, the, the he created the languages. <laughs> like they're, they're his. And so, I, I'm sorry, that, that is not a stretch for me. I, I, I don't have a problem with this. <laughs> I think God can, can use men, he can move men to record his word and get it done accurately. And I also think God can use his same men to translate it into another language with no problem whatsoever. He's pretty smart. Like, he's fairly wise. It's not a problem for him. And so th- this is the problem. So holy men of God spake as they were moved. The men were not inspired, but God said of sinful men that he was able to move them in such a way that his words were accurately recorded. Is it impossible uh, for God then to move men to produce uh, an accurate translation? Now, the entire basis of the seminary argument is that God will not double inspire his word. And we talked about that briefly before. So you believe in double inspiration. That's what they say. And they say it just like that. Oh, so you believe in double inspiration. Shut up. No, I don't. Nobody, I don't know anybody who believes that. In fact, you know, when it comes to debate and argument or or trying to prove your point to someone, there's a concept called a straw man. Does anybody know what that means? Does anybody have an, an idea of what that means? I don't know if you have that concept in Luganda. No. So basically... When you create a straw man argument, you basically made up something that didn't exist and you're going to beat it to death in order to make fun of or to diminish the arguments of another person. You're not dealing with what the other person actually said. Instead, you're creating something that didn't exist and you're going to argue against that no matter what the person over here says. So they call it a straw man. You just made up something. That's, that doesn't even exist. You just made that whole argument up. Double inspiration? Where, where did you get that from? Well, where they got it from is seminary boys sitting in their seminary talking about people they disagree with. And rather than bringing in people they disagree with and discussing their, their point of view based on facts, they just make up what they think that person believes. We're not going to bring them in and let them tell us what they believe. And this is, often, this is a big problem in the Christian world. We make up what we think people believe, and then we argue against the made-up beliefs that we gave them. (laughs) That makes no sense. Find out what they believe. Find out where they are, and deal with them from there. So these guys made up this argument of double inspiration. And uh, the idea is, again, it's, it's very faulty logic. They claim that in order for a translation to be perfect, God must inspire that translation anew. Okay, so that what they're saying is, in order to go from... Hebrew and Greek to English requires that these words be inspired. Otherwise, you cannot cannot get those words into English. That is the stupidest thing that anybody's ever heard of. I don't know anybody that believes that. It it doesn't even exist except in the seminary schoolboy teachings. This is one of the things I call seminary schoolboy dogma. 
And they hate when I say that. It, it makes no logical sense whatsoever. And we've already talked about some of the reasons why, and we're going to go over it again in a moment briefly. It doesn't make sense primarily because if you were to try and pin down who believes in double inspiration, it's them. <laughs> They're arguing against their own beliefs and they don't even realize it. I don't believe the words were inspired from Hebrew and Greek to English. I believe God moved holy men of God to translate it from Hebrew and Greek into English. That's not so radical of a belief. <laughs> Books get translated into different languages all the time. And it's the same book. And, and people will often look and say, they'll look at the translator and say, man, that's, an accu- that's accurate. That's, they did a great job. Or they'll look at one translation and say, man, that's, that's not very accurate. He didn't do a good job. So it, it is completely possible to translate from one language to another. Is it easy? No. Nobody, nobody believes it does not come without complications and without difficulties. It's a, it's a difficult task. It's, it's, a, it's a big, big job. But that big job is made a little bit easier when you have 50 of the greatest linguists to ever live sitting in a room together. That takes away a little bit of the difficulty. And oh, by the way, every one of them was a godly man. Does that sound familiar? Holy men of God were moved to translate the word of God. That's not a problem. <laughs> but they make it a problem. They, they, really, they really struggle with that idea. So they say that God's word is perfect in the originals, but not in the translation. Okay, so again, we're, we're talking about objective truth. Someone ob- objectively proved to me that the word of God is perfect in the originals. What would, what, what's the first thing you would need in order to do that? You would need an original. There are no originals. The, 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 the most... Some of the oldest copies of the Word of God in parts that, that, that are extant come from the second century. That's 200 years after Jesus Christ. At best, that 200-year-old piece of paper is a copy of a copy. Most of them are in the 4th century, and then the overwhelming bulk of them are from the 5th to the 16th century. 16... <laughs> 1,600 years after Jesus Christ, you're going to tell me, you're going to tell me it's an original? I mean, that's some, that's some great preservation of paper. So it's just, it's just, not, it's just not true. It's not, it's not logical. Now, there are several major problems with this idea, and we'll look at a few that I believe are most important. First, the originals do not exist. All that exists are copies of copies. Okay, that, that's a big problem. If you're going to suggest to people the Word of God is perfect in the originals, oh, well, which original did you examine and prove that it was perfect? Well, I've never seen an original. Then how can you make that statement? That is not an objective statement. It cannot be factually proven. So by your own admission, your entire, your entire argument just fell apart. Well, the Word of God is true in the originals. Where would you, and you know, what they, you know what they'll say? Well, God said in his Bible, oh, you mean the King James Bible he said that? 
So you're going to read in a King James Bible that God said his, his word is, is pure and perfect. But then you're going to leave the King James Bible and tell me you've got to go back to the original document where the King James Bible came from? Do you, what are you doing? You are one confused individual and you're hurting my brain. So, that being so, the men who refer to the Greek as the perfect word of God must believe these copies, the copies of copies, are double inspired. (laughs) If you're going to say that the copy of the copy is the original and that it is the perfect word of God, then you're saying that the men who made those copies were inspired or the, or the copies that they made were inspired so that you can have an inspired copy of the Word of God today. So it, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Sinful men produce the, the copies. They must believe that sinful men were able to make copies with no mistakes and therefore preserve God's Word. Well, I believe he did that. I believe that's exactly what he did. In the Antioch line of manuscripts, in the Byzantine line of manuscripts, in the traditional text, in the majority text, which eventually came to produce the Textus Receptus. I think that's exactly what God did. I don't think the men were inspired. I don't think the copies were inspired. The words are inspired. It's a big difference. So a sinful man who loves God can copy the inspired words of God and do it in such a way with integrity and honesty that he produces a clean, a clean, perfect copy of exactly where it came from. I can, do, I can go get any book off the shelf, and I can sit down in here, and if I take my time and I'm very careful, I can make an exact copy of what's written in that book in a notebook with no problem. You can do that. I can do that. Anybody can do that. It's not as big a task as they want you to think it is. It's not as big a problem as they want you to think it is. All right, so then secondly, the men who follow this seminary teaching love the Textus Receptus. Oh, man, the Textus Receptus. Whoa. And I told you, you know, you'll ask them, so what, uh, what do you think about the King James Bible? Well, the Textus Receptus is, I didn't ask you about the Textus Receptus. I asked you about the King James Bible. One guy, we're talking to this guy, and we're in, uh, he is, uh, claims to believe the King James Bible, and we're talking to him at, at lunch one day. He's a missionary in Ukraine, and um, he had come to visit our church, and a brother and I took him out to lunch, and so we were talking about the Bible, and he said, well, do you know what TR is? I was like, the Texas Receptus? Yeah, the TR, very good. What? <laughs> what just happened? I, I thought we were talking about the Bible, and, and, but it's that intellectual aura, you know, TR, you know, we, we believe the TR. Okay, well... As long as you don't take LSD, you might be okay. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, what, how is that relevant to the conversation whatsoever? Who did that help here? And, and so it, it's, it, it's, it's, it is pride, it is intellectual pride and confusion being, being presented as though it was academic. And it's not. It's incoherent, it's illogical, and it's idiotic. The first five editions of the Textus Receptus were produced by Erasmus. Which one is the original? You're going to say the first one? Because Erasmus didn't think the first one was okay and needed to produce five more. Okay, 
How many total copies or, or versions of the Textus Receptus were presented? Who remembers? 19. So which one are you referring to? There were three, three people who were involved in creating what we call the Textus Receptus. Which one of them are you following? <clears throat> they don't even know that. I've not, I've not talked to one of these guys when they say that, and I say, okay, there were three men involved in the making of the Textus Receptus. Which one are you following? And they just look at me like, like I'm crazy. And they say, well, no, Erasmus made the Textus Receptus. Well, no, Erasmus made the first five. So what about, what about Stephanus? And what about Theodore Beza? Which one of those do you, have you read theirs? Well, I don't even know who those men are. No, you don't. You don't know what you're talking about. And you're, 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 you're causing God's people to, to fail to have trust in the word of God based on something that you don't have a clue about. And you're not going to be allowed to do that here as long as I'm here. And I say that lovingly. You're going to know better. You're going to understand. And so when you go and you teach your people, you're going to be able to objectively, either from absolute truth or from objective truth, teach them where the Word of God is. Not like a bunch of confused seminary idiots. All right, so the Textus Receptus was produced by editing and translate, by the, by the editing and translating skills of the men that were involved in it. Okay, so what were the edits and the translating work that they did? What, was that inspired? If you believe in double inspiration, you have to include that. So, so now you can't tell me that going from the Textus Receptus, which again is only your New Testament... They, they always leave out the Masoretic text and the Old Testament. They, only, they love the Textus Receptus. Okay, well, fair enough. Let's, we're talking about the Textus Receptus. If going from Greek, from the Textus Receptus, to the English King James Bible is double inspiration, then going from Latin and the other forms of Greek, because they were different, the Greek language has evolved and changed a lot over the centuries. And so then they had to take it from an ancient form of Greek, and they had to take it from the Latin Vulgate, and they had to take it from Erasmus Vulgate, or, or Latin translation, and put it into the Textus Receptus. So was that double inspiration? They have in their head, it's this cut and dry system that it just always existed in the Greek, and so we can trust the Greek, whatever that is, but we can't trust anything outside the Greek. And the Word of God existed in many different forms outside the Greek for a long time, including the Latin Vulgate, the old Latin Vulgate. <clears throat> Thirdly, repeatedly in the Bible, God used sinful men to produce His Word in other languages. Look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at, let's look at, let's blame God here for using double inspiration. Let's see, a form of double inspiration in the Word of God. Can you believe it? Does God not know any better here? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with what? 
other tongues. And again, in the Bible, what is an other tongue? It's a language. They began speaking. These men speak Hebrew or they speak Greek. Okay? Suddenly they're speaking other languages. Now the word of God is double inspired. If we're going to follow the logic of double inspiration, then God is guilty. God had to inspire his word a second time. So God couldn't just use these men to get his word in another language. These are somehow completely different inspired words of God. That makes no sense. So if we continue, they spake with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak double inspired words in his own language. God has no trouble communicating with people in a different language. You're taking the the limitations of man and applying them to God when you accuse people of double inspiration, which again, doesn't exist. If anybody believes double inspiration, it's the person who tells you that I believe the word of God is in the originals. You have to believe the copy, either the copies were double inspired, you have to believe the Textus Receptus, which came from the Latin, the Latin Vulgate, another Latin translation, and different forms of Greek text into a consolidated New Testament Greek text. You have to believe that was double inspired, And so God can do all of that, but he cannot get it from Greek to English. And again, they never mentioned the Old Testament. They never mentioned the Masoretic text. So I'm assuming God could handle Hebrew to English. He just couldn't handle Greek to English. It's the whole, the whole, it's illogical. It's faulty. Nobody would say this was double inspiration. Nobody, nobody with any sense. uh, Let's let's continue reading uh, verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these men which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? These men are speaking the words of God in our language. Every one of us is hearing it in our own particular specific language. God has no problem getting his word into another language. And who did he use to do it here? Men. So now, now we have to, now if we follow the same logic, oh, well, you use men to, to speak it in another language, they probably made mistakes. No. No, the, the logic doesn't follow, and, and, and you've cornered yourself into a place where you don't have the Word of God. Why would you do that? And, 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 and it's not, and again, I want to be very clear, it's, I'm not saying this because I have a predisposition to this book. It is objectively and spiritually true that this is the Word of God. I I think that can be so overwhelmingly demonstrated that you should have faith in it. it. It's not a subjective statement. It's not a feeling. It's absolutely true. There's a great gap between men who believe God's word is perfect in the originals and the men who believe the King James Bible is amongst God's perfect preservation of his word. The originals do not exist. The men who claim their perfection cannot produce an original copy to verify their claims. I have a copy of the perfect word of God in the King James Bible. 
And I can, show, I can demonstrate to you where it came from, how it got here, and it will demonstrate to you itself its perfect accuracy, if you'll let it. Um, inspiration started with nothing, okay? This is the difference. This is what you need to, to get in your mind. Inspiration starts with nothing. Uh, where did that go? Starts with nothing and ends with God using men to produce the written word of God. All right, so if God's going to inspire something, He's going to inspire Scripture, that means it doesn't exist. And He's going to send a man and He's going to tell them, Go and tell these people, this is what I said. What did God say to Jonah repeatedly? In fact, let's quickly, let's turn there. It's worth looking at. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey. So do you see the process there? Now, that is unbelievably simplistic, but it's unbelievably true. God went to a man and he said, here's my words. Take those words, go to that city and preach them. And then Jonah did that. There is plenty of objective data that will prove to you the King James Bible is the the word of God, the perfect word of God. But a measure of it is going to require faith. You're going to have to trust God. But nobody's asking you to to join the the dogmatic side who in blind faith makes dogmatic statements. But if you ask them a single question, couldn't tell you anything. They just yell at you and tell you you're stupid because you didn't listen to them. It's because they don't know. They, They believe the King James Bible is the word of God, but they don't know why they believe it. Now, to some extent, I would rather you be there because there's hope for you if you believe you have God's word. If you don't believe you have God's word, you have no hope. Unless God's going to show up to you like he did Jonah and say, oh, here's my words. (laughs) Not happening. Then you've got to find God's written word somewhere and you've got to trust it and you've got to believe it. And and it's here. So the originals do not exist. Inspiration started with nothing and ended with God using men to produce the written word of God. Preservation starts with the existing written words of God in one language and the Lord using men to produce it in another language. That's an aspect of preservation. Look, it's either going to be, it's either going to be copies in the same language or a translation into another language. That's how God chose to preserve. That's what God did to preserve his word. And now if you look at the moving of how it all happened, it goes from Hebrew. In a place where they speak Hebrew and Greek, his, his word, his Old Testament is recorded in Hebrew. His New Testament is recorded in Greek. It just so happens to be done under the greatest empire to exist in the Roman Empire at that time. So God's word gets, gets moved through, through the course of that empire that's spreading across the world. And then over time, it makes its way to England, who did what? Became the most powerful empire in the world. 
When I lived in Saudi Arabia, there were a lot of British guys there. And I used to ask them, I used to, you guys had the whole world at one time. How'd you end up with this tiny little island? <laughs> you used to own everything, and now all you got left is a couple of little islands <laughs> in, in Europe. What happened? Uh, and so they don't like that, but that's okay. Through them, the world power became an English-speaking nation. Now, they, I'm not condoning their dominance of the world. We kicked them out. Most people, they just got tired of being there and left <laughs> in most countries. America said, you got to go. <laughs> and we kicked them out. And so England and America from there became the world dominating powers. And from that point until now, the entire world is in a mad rush to speak what language? English. So what language did God put his word in? English. And when America falls and England falls, whatever language is the next world power, I guarantee you they will end up with the word of God in their language. In a trustworthy and usable, accurate, perfect, preserved copy. So it really isn't that complicated. But the world of Christian scholarship landed on the side of textual criticism as taught by Westcott and Hort. And Bible-believing Christians should have followed Dean Burgeon, not Westcott and Hort. I know you've heard me say that a hundred times, but who are you going to follow? What are you going to do? Because now you have a choice to make. Uganda is fractured because of its many tribal languages. But Uganda also is united in the fact that they speak English. A large portion of the country speaks English. And as long as you continue to rely on your local tribal languages as a country, you're never going to be united. It's not even possible. You can't even communicate. But if you ever become reliant on a united language, which for the most part you've done with English, there's been talk of Swahili, but English is already there. People already speak it in large, large portions of Uganda. They're already fairly comfortable with it. Why would you switch it now? They should have switched to Swahili a long time ago. But it's a bit late for that now. They'd be taking a big risk. So you just happen to, to have been colonized by the very country who produced the King James Bible and you speak that language and you have access to the perfect word of God. I don't know if you understand how unbelievably blessed you are because of that. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.